Father, we thank you for your word, and we come this morning with humble hearts and open hands to receive from you. Lord, would you teach us? Would you, uh, by your spirit, open our eyes and our minds and our ears, Lord, to, to understand your word, to apply it to our lives? Uh, Lord, we pray just that you would uh, teach us. Would you convict us where necessary? Comfort us, Lord, where we need comforting. Just do all that you desire to do uh, in our time together. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, well, welcome to FBC. Once again, my name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here and want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Haggai, chapter 2, where we are in our third week, third and final week of this third quarter series that we're using uh, the book of Haggai as our guide. We'll be back in the Gospel of John next week. And hey, just a reminder, you're going to need either a hard copy of the Bible, which are on the seats in front of you, or pull it up on your phone. We're not going to have all the verses on the screen this morning like normal because the pastor man had to switch up the order of some things and move some slides around and it got it was two last minutes so we're just going no slides but you guys can enjoy reading your version of God's word there in your hands so it's going to be great okay um, and you might be wondering hey again if, especially if you're here this morning for the first time you're like Haggai that's you know, that's a strange name. That's an old book. Have we even read that book before? Um, I know it's kind of an overlooked book. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And maybe, again, you might be wondering, well, what relevance does this ancient and sort of obscure text have to do with our lives in the fall of 2021? But we, of course, here at FBC believe in the authority of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuke and training and righteousness. And so even um, the, the small little books in the Old Testament or the, uh, the books that have names that are really hard to pronounce or, you know, are somewhat confusing to us, um, there's something there that, that is for us that God wants to speak to his church. And so we come expectant, we come ready to receive from Haggai today. Uh, we've been talking about this whole idea of the third quarter. You saw the image on the screen, and we got the, the coach's whiteboard here as we kind of roll out our church-wide emphasis for the fall that we're uh, calling the third quarter. We're going to be talking about it all throughout the fall, but this specific sermon series in Haggai attached to it, again, today is the final week. But this idea of the third quarter, again, comes from the world of sports, where we say in the world of sports, halftime is a break in the action, where people pause, where the coaches and the players are able to evaluate what's going on, take a look at the landscape, take a look at, at what they've learned in the first half, and then go out into the third quarter with an uh, adjusted game plan, right? With some changes to their strategy, saying, hey, we've learned some things and we need to do some things differently now that we have a chance to talk about it and think about it so that we're successful jumping back out into the game. And so we've been talking about how our church and really our world has been navigating this massive disruption called COVID that for the last 18 months has derailed so much, disrupted our lives, put many things on pause, and we're not quite out of the woodwork or out of the woods yet, um, 
but this is perhaps the most normal things have felt in a while, right? School's back in session. We're starting to see some things return uh, to life, rebuilding kind of our rhythms and community and patterns and so on. And so we're trying to think, hey, as a church family, as we're rebuilding on this uh, future other side of COVID, um, what changes do we need to make? What adjustments to our strategy as individuals and as a church we need to make? So we've been talking about these three words, right? Fundamentals, preparation, game time. Okay, in the first week we talked about the fundamentals, which included things like coming to church, uh, being in a small group, right? living life in community, and uh, reading the Bible regularly. So I know we've kicked off the Bible reading plan for the fall. A number of you, I see if, a number of you I know are joining us. We're reading through the New Testament this fall just because we want to uh, practice that normal rhythm habit of being in God's Word, reading it for ourselves. And so on the Bible app, uh, I think about 70 of us are reading through the New Testament together this fall. So if you're joining us, awesome. If you're not, it's not too late. We're only a few days in. And so you can, uh, on our website, if you go to our homepage of our website, BeniciaFirstBaptist.com, there's a little link that says with the third quarter logo there. And then it says, uh, join the Bible reading plan. And you can get signed up on the app on our group plan where we can navigate that together. Okay, so we talked about fundamentals, church, community, uh, Bible reading and prayer. Um, then, last week, we talked about this concept of preparation. Where we said, hey, when we're on the sidelines uh, beyond Sunday, uh, we want to be well prepared to get back into the game. And so are we thinking and praying and growing and engaging with helpful resources that are going to help us grow so that we don't just, you know, come to church on Sunday and think about it then, but then the rest of the week we don't, you know, just leave it behind. And so this month, to live out this kind of adjustment to our strategy, we're going to per, uh, put out these resources every month and invite people to participate. There's a couple articles, a couple uh, podcasts we're going to link to on our website every month. There's a book of the month. And so if you were here last week, you got one of these fancy magnets. Is this on anyone's fridge yet? Yeah, all right. Okay, fridge magnet, it's on my fridge. Um, with a little QR code where you can, you know, zap that and it takes you uh, to our website that has the list of resources for the month of September where you can uh, engage with those. And then we also have, if you're on Facebook, we have a little Facebook discussion group where there's, again, a link to that from our website where we're going to be talking about some of the things that we learned. So, simply put, uh, preparation is about monthly resources to help you engage beyond Sunday. Uh, on the black table out there, if you didn't get a copy of the book of the month, which is gentle and lowly, we have free copies for everybody. So if you didn't grab one, uh, grab one of those books now. There's plenty of them there for you and a journal so that you can engage with us this month. And now we're talking about the third piece, which is game time. I know, mysterious. You're probably wondering, okay, what exactly does that get at? And we're going to jump into that this morning. But first, we're going to jump into the book of Haggai and see how it prepares us to see this idea. The book of Haggai, the setting is 520 BC, right? The story of the people of God here is picking up after decades and decades and decades of exile, right? The people were conquered by the Babylonian Empire, carted off to live in Babylon. They're out of their land, away from home. There's this uh, long, about 70-year period where that's taking place. And then uh, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and so the people of God, uh, under the decree of the Persian king, are allowed to return home. So the exile is over, 
The people of God go back to their land. They're allowed to rebuild their lives, rebuild their communities. Uh, But we see after this huge disruption, right, their third quarter moment, they're coming back, they're rebuilding. We see there's a bit of a problem. And this is what we talked about for the past couple weeks, right? The problem is that the people are back in the land for almost 20 years now, and they've rebuilt their homes, and they've rebuilt their lives in a number of ways, but they haven't rebuilt the temple. And so God comes to them and says, hey, your houses look great. I mean, great job. You could put some of this up on Pinterest. You're doing really well. But my house, it still lays in ruins. And so you've prioritized your initiatives, your endeavors, rebuilding your lives in so many ways, but you've neglected proper worship of me. You've neglected our relationship. You've neglected the covenant. You've rebuilt so many things, but uh, your relationship with me hasn't been one of those things. And God points out that they need to what, reset their priorities, consider their ways, give careful thought to how they are living, and then uh, get to work rebuilding the temple, right? Realigning their priorities with the priorities of God. Now, to us, that might seem you know, small and petty, like why is a building so important? Why do they have to rebuild the temple? But again, for the, the Jews in the Old Testament, we can't, it's hard to overstate the importance, the centrality of the temple, for proper worship. I mean, that was, that was where God dwelled with them. That was where they sensed the nearness of God, where sacrifices were offered, where they experienced the mercy of God, where the Torah was, I mean, so much happened at the temple. And so it would be just, again, unfathomable that they were like, we're back from exile. We can rebuild the temple, but we're not going to do it. And we're going to go do other things. It would just be unfathomable. And so God comes and Tells them, hey, let's get back to work on the temple. We're going to be mostly in chapter 2 today, but I want you to see real quick what happens at the end of chapter 1, okay? Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. It says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. Okay, so they came and they started working on the temple. The temple was neglected. God says, hey, you need to reset your priorities. Come build the temple. In verse 8, he says, hey, go rebuild it. Go get the timber from the hills. Chop down the trees. Do whatever you got to do. Come and build this thing. Make this right. Let's get moving. And then the chapter ends. You see, verse 14, God stirs up the hearts of the people, the spirit of the people, to do the work. But I want you to notice, again, ask the question of verse 14, who is it? that does the work. A few people are mentioned, right? You see Zerubbabel, the governor, okay. Then who? Joshua, the high priest, great. Then who? The whole remnant of the people. Okay, so God stirs up their hearts, and it it wasn't about just a few key leaders getting to work, doing the tasks, It was about the whole remnant of the people joining in the work. And so when God came and he stirred up the spirit, he stirred up the hearts of the people, and they were convicted and said, we need to do something about this. They didn't say, you're right, God, the temple lays in ruins. We need to do something about this. Joshua, Zerubbabel, get to work. No, they said, we all need to do something about this. 
all the remnant of the people got to work. There's something for me to do here as well. So they're rebuilding the temple. Now, look at chapter 2, how it starts. We heard from Ian just uh, briefly read this passage. It says, On the 21st day, verse 1, of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Okay, and at, at first read, it's going to seem like God's being, like playing hardball here, okay? He's gonna, it's going to seem like he's being real, pretty savage with his people and kind of, you know, coming out. But there's an encouraging word here, okay? So stay with me. So first, God points out, he comes to the people. They're, they're rebuilding the temple, right? They're like, we, we hear you, God, we're going to rebuild this thing. Uh, but he comes to them and he's like, this whole project you're working on, it doesn't really look like much, does it? Not very impressive, is it? Kind of disappointing, actually, when you look at it, huh? All right, verse 3, look. It's like, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? See, some of the older people in the community were still uh, around back before exile, and they saw Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. They remember it before exile, and it was glorious. It was spectacular. It was filled with beauty and splendor. And glory, I mean, by any objective standard, the temple of Solomon was a sight to behold. It was filled with all kinds of artwork and craftsmanship and gold and wealth. And so God comes to them. Again, it's pretty hardcore, right? Verse 3. Hey, remember the temple in the, its former glory? Like some of you are still around who remember that. Remember how, how amazing it was? Well, how does this temple you're rebuilding look? compared to that. Like, does, does it seem to you like nothing? Yeah, it doesn't look so good, does it? The rebuilt temple is not that impressive. In fact, in Ezra, we see that when the foundations are laid of that rebuilt temple, people are weeping because like, it doesn't look anything like it used to look. It used to be so beautiful and glorious, and now what, what is this, this shack we've built here? The people would be discouraged like this compared to the former temple this rebuilt thing is is nothing and so the people rightfully would be maybe a little discouraged maybe their expectations of what the temple was going to look like weren't being met morale among the people would probably be low but here's the encouragement god doesn't leave him there look what he says in verse four but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I'll once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house, check it, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Almighty. Guys, this is so good. 
this is so good. Okay, stay with me here. So God calls the people in light of this. Hey, this temple doesn't look like much, does it? Yeah, compared to that old temple, this, I mean, this is nothing. But then he comes to the people and says, but be strong. And he promises his people, what, that he's with them still. Verse 4, he's with them. Verse 5, my spirit remains among you. God will use this temple. He will fill it with his glory. His presence is there. Verse 9 even says that the glory will be greater than it was before. This might take some time. And then verse, uh, that's in verse 6. And then in verse 9, he says, yeah, it'll be greater than it was before. And so I want you to see how huge, how, how much of a paradigm shift this would be for the people. Because here's why. Again, morale would be low. The people would be discouraged. The memory of the former glorious temple was in their minds. And it, it was in some sense understood by the people that if they had an impressive God, he needed to live in an impressive house. Right? I mean, if, if you want to house the king of the universe, you better have a pretty glorious, impressive, amazing temple. I mean, that's why the, the, the temple of Solomon had all this uh, wonder and splendor and wealth and beauty and art worked into it. Because in the ancient mind, again, if God was going to come and dwell with you, you better make him a fitting house. So an impressive God requires an impressive temple. So think about it, that's in the people's minds. And then they're looking at their rebuilding efforts and they're like, this thing is a shack compared to that. Right? God's not going to come back and live in this thing. Was Pastor Matt the architect on this? I don't know. He's not handy at all, right? Is that like, are those beams held together by duct tape? What's going on? You know, the door frame, is that chewing gum stuck in there? What are you guys doing, right? They're just looking at this thing and they're like, God's not going to come and live in this thing. Our impressive God isn't going to come and dwell in this unimpressive house. That's what they're thinking. And maybe we can relate with that sort of thought or discouragement. Maybe that's how we feel about our lives. Right, this big, glorious, impressive God that I read about in the Bible, he's not going to come be part of my life. I mean, who am I, right? Or look at my life, it's messy, complicated. There's sin in my heart. And so, I mean, maybe, maybe if I clean it up, make it look really nice, then God will come and want to be with me. Maybe if I jump through the spiritual hoops enough, start going to church, start acting right, then maybe God's going to come and, and be a part of my life. And so I need to be impressive if this impressive God is going to come be with me. Or maybe some of us think this about, about church life. You know, we're a small church. We've got plenty of growth areas as a church family, don't we? We say, maybe, sure, God will come down, and he's at work in the world, sure, but in like the big, you know, exciting, flashy movement, you know? I mean, where things are really moving and shaking and exciting, that's where God's at. I don't know so much about, about our church. No, we, we so bought into the American vision of success. It's about size and speed and excitement, 
We're not so sure about where does God fit into small, humble gatherings. A, a stumbling little group of people like us here in quiet Benicia, California. But what does God say to all this? Verse 4. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. And work, for I am with you. I'm here with you already. So the temple might not look like much, but I'm with you. And your life might look all sorts of sideways. But I'm with you in this small, humble church. Might not make the news or a cover of magazines, but I'm here, right? And so with God, he doesn't say, hey, first I want you to clean things up. I want you to act right. And then maybe I'll consider, you know, moving in and, and being close to you. He's actually, first, I'm going to show up, and that's going to make this place beautiful. It's my presence that brings the beauty and the glory. And isn't that, just think about it, isn't that the logic of the gospel? This message of salvation that we celebrate, that the New Testament lays out for us fully, God doesn't say, hey, first deal with your sin and your mess, and then... I'm going to come and be with you. He says, no, I'm going to show up and I'm going to take away your sin myself. He doesn't say, first, you need to come to me and love me properly and then I'll love you back. No, what is the gospel? We love because he first loved us. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. When the sick people in the first century saw Jesus and the lepers saw Jesus, they didn't say, let's go clean ourselves up and get healed so that we can go hang out with Jesus. They said, we need to go hang out with Jesus so that we can be healed, right? So that's the logic of the gospel, and that's the logic that, that the Lord is unrolling for his people here. Yeah, it might not look like much. You might be wondering where I am. You don't need an impressive house, an impressive life, an impressive temple for me to come and dwell with you. I'm already here. I'll be here if you simply come and ask. This is what Ephesians 2 talks about. The simple message of salvation, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Right? So we're saved by grace. It's, it's a gift. It's not by works. And so if, if you're here this morning and you are waiting to come to Jesus or waiting to get serious about God until your life is a little more in order or things feel a little more cleaned up or you feel a little more socially presentable, you're going to be waiting a long time, as we all would, Right? And so the invitation of Jesus is, come to him now. Cry out to him now. Trust in him now. He wants to be with you now, not later. It's good news, right? Look how the book ends. We see the similar promise in verse 20. Fast forward to verse 20 with me. Again, the series of Haggai is this series of um, messages from the Lord. This is the last one. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. 
I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So God here, in the end of the book, is pointing to the future. You see this? He's pointing ahead, and he talks about shaking the heavens and the earth. Similar language to what we read in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 2. Overthrowing thrones and kingdoms and nations. There's this uh, apocalyptic language, sort of end times language. And God is going to come on the scene and really shake things up, where we think about, again, the return of Jesus and the Lord establishing his kingdom fully and dealing with proud nations and kings and evil in the world. And so by pointing the people forward, he's reminding them that he's up to much more than we can see. There's more to the story, more that God's going to do than what we can see right now. Even if uh, mighty nations and kings and evildoers seem so powerful, seem like they're ruling the day, the Lord says, not for long. You see, he ends in verse 23 by speaking again to Zerubbabel. And he says what? This last line, I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. Here's a small hint that uh, God's people still have a part to play in all of this. Talks about Zerubbabel as a signet ring. Okay, a signet ring was uh, worn by the king in the ancient world. It would have some sort of seal and would be a mark of the king's authority, it would show uh, royal ownership, it would be used to seal documents, this very official statement. And Zerubbabel you know, was the governor of Judah at the time, the text has repeated that a number of times, and he was the heir to the line of David, which if we know our Old Testament, we know that there were these promises from the Old Testament, a king who would come from the line of David, and his throne would be eternal, and he would rule forever. So this messianic language used about the line of David. And Zerubbabel, in, in their day, was the most likely candidate for such an office. And so God promises, symbolically, not that Zerubbabel is the Messiah, but that God's promise to his people and the line of David was not done. And that Zerubbabel, by being the signet ring, would be upon his finger, symbolically identifying that he, the Lord, will fulfill his purposes to the line of David. He will accomplish his purposes in the world. And this divine king to come would still come through the line of David. And so connected to this is then the people of God, saying where you are now, with Zerubbabel as your leader, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with my promises to my people. I'm not done using you in the world. And so you have a part to play in my cosmic plans for the future of this world. And that's how the book of Haggai ends. And so, take all this into account, we want to draw a few parallels to our day, and specifically this whole third quarter idea, 
and see what this might mean for us, and specifically with this idea of game time that we're talking about here. A couple takeaways. Uh, first, we have to ask the question, again, when we're thinking about the work that God has given us to do as a church family, we have to ask, who is it that does the work? Right? Who's responsible for the work? We have these four core commitments. We're called to worship and connect and grow and go engage the world with the needs or with the power of the gospel. Who does it? Who's responsible? We think back to verse 14 of chapter 1, right? It wasn't just the governor. It wasn't just the high priest. It wasn't just a few key leaders. It was the whole remnant of the people. And so like we said before, as, as we've talked about before as a church family, it's not just about the pastors doing the ministry or the staff doing the ministry. The work of the church belongs to the people of the church. Amen, everybody. You all have a part to play. This makes us think of uh, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that famous uh, image of the body of Christ. Right, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And that verse 27 comes after this long illustration that Paul uses to help us understand how the church is supposed to function. And along the way, he says what? We are one body, but many parts. So there's unity and diversity. Unity. There's uh, interdependence, you could say. Right? We, we need one another. In order for us to accomplish the mission of God in the world, in order for us to be a healthy church, right, we need one another. A, a foot or an ear or a hand can't be chopped off and thrown aside and still be healthy. Or the body can't be healthy. If it's missing its hand or legs or ears, there would be some sort of hindrance to the body accomplishing the work that it needs to do. And so in the same way, we need one another. If we think that the church can flourish without the contributions of its people, then we're wrong. So unity, interdependence, uh, and second, contribution. Right? We, we all have something we contribute to the work of the whole. If you think that you're not valuable to the work of this church, or what you bring to the table isn't important, you are wrong. We all have a part to play. If you think that because you're not, this is what 1 Corinthians 12 lays out, if you think that because you're not gifted in a certain way, you know, well, I'm not, you know, up on stage with a microphone or I'm not teaching a Bible study, so I don't know, you know, I'm not in the spotlight, I don't know if I'm really valuable or contributing much to the church, you're wrong, right? Just because you're not, uh, you might say, I'm not a hand or I'm, I'm not a foot, I'm not an eyeball, I'm like a, a nostril, you know, and there's some hair in the nostril, and I'm not so, you know, but we, we need our nostrils, don't we? We all have a part to play. And so this is where we're talking about the third quarter game time. We, we all want to jump into the game. We want to encourage our whole church family to jump in and be a part of the work of God. We all want to be on the field, so to speak, not in the sidelines, not on the stands, just watching, but participating in the work. 
And that looks a number of different ways, right? When we think about being on mission, living this out in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and loving our neighbors, and all kinds of, of ministry we're a part of out there. But, but also we have an opportunity here at church to serve together, to serve on ministry teams and contribute to the life of this church, right? There are so many people involved in the life of this church in making a Sunday morning service happen, in fulfilling uh, the various ministries that our church runs. It takes a lot of people. You know, they say that you, you learn the most when you have to teach something. Have you heard that phrase? Like if, if you're preparing to teach, you're going to learn more than the people that you're teaching because you have to study and prepare and know how to explain it. I think you could say a similar thing about serving, that you're going to grow the most when you step up to serve. When you step into ministry and have some sort of responsibility, even if you feel ill-equipped for it, it's in that place that the Lord is going to stretch you and teach you and grow you and use you. And so serving and uh, leading is not about having it all together, but it's about showing up and saying, all right, Lord, would you use me? Teach me. Help me grow. And so what we want to do is just highlight a few of the specific ministries we have at the church to give you ideas of how you could serve. And I know looking out that many of you are already serving in various capacities. So I just want to cheer you on in doing that, celebrate you in that. Hope this, this morning would simply be just another encouragement to keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, but for many of us, if, if we're newer here or haven't been serving in different ways, uh, this is an opportunity to think about how you might want to get involved. And so some of the opportunities to serve we have here. One is our, our welcome team, our greeters, right? Hopefully you were greeted warmly by a smile behind a mask, you know. Uh, but as you came in, you were greeted warmly by someone on our greeting team. People say, hey, I want to make people feel welcome here. I want to love people as they come in our doors. We, we need uh, loving, outstanding greeters to help us right from the get-go uh, meet people. Again, before they even come in, before they hear anything going on up here, they're going to see you all out there. And we want people committed to making people feel welcome here. We, we need help on our hospitality team. Okay, there are a, a lot of events. Uh, next week we have a church picnic, which a lot of people are helping out with. Uh, we just had a memorial last week uh, to, to be with and bless the Smith family. And there were a, lo a lot of you came and helped set up and helped get the food ready and do a number of things that had to be done in order for that service to happen. Again, not just the staff that ran it, but a lot of you volunteered. So we have uh, needs for people who have a heart for hospitality, to serve, to show up, to set up, to clean up, to help in those different ways. Uh, we have things like the Friendship Club, where we have this awesome ministry in town to those with uh, intellectual disabilities, this monthly gathering where our church volunteers get to love these people and invite them, and there's, there's games and a Bible lesson and crafts, and just uh, my wife's a part of it, and they, just, they love it. There's so many people uh, who come and help out the Friendship Club, but maybe you'd have a heart to come and join and participate in that ministry. Many of you are already serving as small group leaders. We're always looking for additional small group leaders, people who are willing to open up their homes and, and lead a Bible study. And we'd love to equip you. Pastor Lee would love to talk with you and walk through that process of what it would look like to be a small group leader. But many of you are already serving in this capacity. 
We need people serving in our kids' ministry, right? Our, our kids' teachers, our kids' helpers who ensure that our kids' programming is a safe environment, is a loving environment where our young people are hearing the gospel and being pointed to Jesus. And I can't tell you just how many good things I continually hear about our kids' ministry, how much kids love it. So if you're already serving in kids' ministry, great job. If you have a heart for kids and to serve in that capacity, uh, let us know. We'd love to point you in that direction. Uh, we have, need help on the worship team, on our, our tech team. Can we give a shout-out to the tech team in the back? <laughs> Woo! Yeah! They're, like, they're very uncomfortable right now that I just did that, okay? Because they're, they're, like, behind the scenes. But, again, we need people to help with our, our sound system and the camera and the slides and, and all of that. Uh, maybe you have a heart to serve in that way. Uh, we, we need people all a part of our prayer team. We'd love to have some opportunities to have our prayer team present on Sunday mornings and here up front able to pray with people after the service, that sort of thing. And so if you have a heart for prayer, uh, a sense of just compassion, real um, you know, mercy in your heart for people who are in need and love to pray with people, let us know. We'd love to get you on our prayer team and see if we can make that happen. Also, another one I'm excited about rolling out is called the Table Team, where we need people who, when there's new people to the church, say, hey, I'd be willing to open up my home and sit, get around the table with this new person or this, this new family and invite them over. We can have a barbecue, throw something on the grill, or sit outside or go out for coffee. Just some way, get around a table so that new people to the church don't just know, like, you know, the person up front that's talking or a staff member, but, but other people in the church start to make connections. And so if you have a, a heart for new people and w- would love to make people feel welcome, we're trying to roll out our our table team, or maybe there's a a way that you'd like to serve, a heart for something that uh, I haven't mentioned, maybe isn't even on my radar. And so I just want to be clear that this this whole, you know, push to serve isn't because, uh, you know, you guys aren't doing enough or you need to step it up. It's it's just an honest acknowledgement that I don't know if I've always done the best job of, of utilizing the people of the church, right, and giving ministry away and saying, hey, how has God gifted you? And yeah, let's see you run with that. And so I don't want things to be unnecessarily um, bottlenecked with, with me or because we're still, uh, bottom line, we're still figuring this out, right? And that's why we want to talk about that this fall. It's not because we have it all put together, but we need to put our heads together and see how does God want to move and work in this church? And that means I, I want to hear from you the things that are on your hearts. And think about it, you guys are gifted people. I just want you to know, you are gifted people. Really gifted, of course, by the Holy Spirit. And God wants to use you to, to build his church. But also, I want you just to think about all of the, the meaningful work that you do out in the world. Some of you lead uh, businesses. You run companies. You manage leadership teams. You are uh, skilled craftsmen or artists or uh, contribute to the world in a number of ways. Your, your parents, you're your, your making a home, you're your with your kids all day, which all these things take incredible skill. You have an incredible capacity order, uh, right, as image bearers of God to work and create and plan and bring order to your world. And so it would be a shame. It would be a shame if you all did so much out there had so many gifts and so many skills and are, are doing big things in the world, and then we just ask you to come to church and not do anything. 
Right? That, that wouldn't make any sense. And so I just want, I want to empower you. I want to see you as the people of the church do the work of the church and see well, how does God want to move and work through us. And here's the deal. The most exciting things we do as a church, I'm convinced, the best things we do as a church are the things that involve you all. When I think about just the highlights of the church year, you know, for me personally, it's not like, oh, I gave that one sermon and I was really happy with how that went. Or, yeah, I did, you know, I gave this great little talk. That's not what fires me up. What fires me up is seeing you guys, seeing VBS, having just handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of you show up for a whole week and love kids and teach kids and, and play with kids and eat snacks with kids and just see how so many of you came out to provide this awesome experience for our community. Or when I think about a walk through Bethlehem, right, this huge uh, outreach at the end of the year and seeing how many of you are involved and ser- serving alongside one another and using your gifts and, and giving your time that's what excites me. Those are the highlights when I see you guys all doing so much. The best things we do as a church are the things that involve you all. And so I just want to encourage you to think along those lines and really pray about what that could look like. We're going to be talking about that more and more this fall. And there's a couple simple ways to respond right now. If there's something that I've said already that you're like, boom, that's me, I want in, let me know. A couple ways to respond. One, uh, on the connection card. Okay, so when you came in, you got the connection card with the bulletin. Um, you can fill out the connection card. Give us your name, contact info. There's a little box you can check on there about serving at FBC. And you can jot a little note down if there's a specific area I've mentioned, whether it's, again, the hospitality uh, team, the greeting team. Uh, if you want to know about small group ministry or kids ministry or youth ministry or the friendship club or the Red Awning Cafe I didn't mention earlier, but helping out serve our middle schoolers, which we're still talking about uh, relaunching that. Fill out your connection card. Let us know. The other way to respond is very simply on the homepage of our website, okay, BeniciaFirstBaptist.com. If you scroll down just a little bit, you're going to see the third quarter logo, and you're going to see a little link that says, join a ministry team. If you click that, it'll be a little fillable form where you can give us your information real briefly, and then it has a list of different needs in the church and teams we have where you can serve. So we'd love to hear from you and see how we can plug you in. And again, today's not the only day that we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be trying to mention this um, up front throughout the fall quite often. So that's really the, the main takeaway and the first big takeaway from the book of Haggai here this morning is the work is for all of us. We want to invite you to join in. And the, the last thing from the book of Haggai, the second encouragement is, is simply this. Don't overlook the ordinary. Right? The people looked at this unimpressive temple that they were rebuilding, and they thought, what in the world is God going to do with this? And God reminds them, actually, I'm here, and I am going to use this, even though it doesn't look the way you expect it. And so maybe we're tempted to think, you know what, my small contribution, my small act of faith, my small way that I serve not really sure it's going to add up to much, you know. Those small acts of kindness towards my neighbors, simple step to, to pray for someone in our community, leading a small group, and it felt like no one got anything out of the discussion at all. <laughs> or I taught this kid's ministry lesson, and I don't think they heard a word of what I said, right? Or it feels like, I, you know, I, I waved hello to someone. I, I gave a hug at church on Sunday. 
I tried to give an encouraging word to someone. I invited someone to church, and they, they didn't come. I had a new family come over to my home, and I felt like just so silly and said a lot of weird things, and I don't know if they'll ever come back. Right? All these small steps were like, I just don't know what it's going to add up to. Is God even going to use that? Yes. He uses all of it. So don't overlook the ordinary, the small steps of faithfulness. Friends, as we close our service this morning, uh, we have a chance to really celebrate what unites us as a church family. We want to be a church family. We want to be in this room if it weren't for Jesus and his work, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, the new life that he gives to us. Because we're a a bunch of... uh, quirky people, aren't we? We're all quirky in our different ways. We come from different backgrounds. We have all kinds of different views about any number of issues out in the world. If it were just up to kind of natural coincidence, we wouldn't likely many of us be friends. And yet we're family because of Jesus. We celebrate that because of our shared faith in Jesus, he unites us together and he's actually glorified when when odd misfits like us come together and are say, we're, we're family because of Jesus. And so we get to take communion, which is an act, of course, that remembers the work of Jesus on the cross, what he did for us, his, his death, his broken body, his shed blood for our sin. And also we remember his resurrection and the new life that he gives us. And so, friends, you have the... Uh, elements. If you need gluten-free elements, you can throw your hand up real quick. I believe we have someone who can run those to you. Okay. Team's going to be on that as the band comes. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to celebrate the table together and the elements and what Jesus has done. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for who you are. And the reminder from Haggai that You come and dwell with us, not because we are so impressive, not because we uh, we worked for your love or earned it, but simply because of your grace. You came to rescue us. So Jesus, we thank you for your broken body and shed blood for us that forgives us, that cleanses us from sin and brings us into your family. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.